We're continuing our series, Only God, uh, 10 Psalms, 10 weeks, and uh, I understand and I listened to uh, Peter last week. He gave a marvelous uh, uh, teaching on Psalm 51, just a great, great psalm, one of my very favorite psalms, and I was so pleased to have Peter with us last week. We continue on this week with Psalm 100. If you have your Bibles, turn to it. If you don't have a Bible, maybe grab one uh, underneath uh, the pew or the, the seat in front of you. And as you do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about a, a book that I was looking at uh, called uh, the, the Gift of Thanks by Margaret Visser. And uh, what she basically says in the, her book, uh, something that parents already know. This is nothing new to you parents. Uh, thank, thankfulness does not come naturally to children. Did you know that? I don't know if you realize that, but, but uh, I think you probably do understand that. But in her book, uh, she cites a study which observed how parents teach their children how to say three words. The word hi, the word thanks, and the word goodbye. Now, children in the study, when they come upon other people, spontaneously said hi or hello about 27% of the time. That's a little more than a quarter, not too bad, but, you know, not great, but okay. When leaving a setting where there were other people present, and, you know, obviously they're leaving now and they're staying or they're going, and uh, they said goodbye about 25% of the time. But when someone did something nice for them or someone provided something for them, they said thank you or thanks only 7% of the time. 7% of the time. Now, her conclusion, and I guess her advice at the same time to parents, was that they needed to teach their children to say thank you, even before they knew what it means. Uh, my, my daughter and my son-in-law teach our granddaughter to say thank you, and she'll say it, and I, I know she may be starting to get it, but for the most part, she, she just says it. But it's a, that's, a, that's a good thing. She wrote this. She said, in our culture, Thanksgiving is believed to be, for most children, the very last of basic social graces that they acquire. Children have to be brought up to say that they are grateful. Mr. continued. She said, eventually, when children have matured and been further educated, they will come to be able to feel the emotion that the words express. The words come first, the feelings later. So she said it's basically one of the last social graces. But I got to tell you something right now. According to Psalm 100, thanksgiving and being thankful is not just or merely a social grace. Social scientists have long known the role that gratitude plays in physical and even emotional well-being. Robert Emmons, he's a PhD professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis, did a major study on this, and he said this, quote, a feeling of gratitude really gets people to do something, to become more pro-social, to become more compassionate. Now, I want to add to that, just in the years that I've been alive, for thankful people, as opposed to entitled people or people who aren't very grateful or aren't very thankful. I have found that thankful people, on a whole, are much humbler than most people, I think, in the culture. And I also think that they are much less self-centered. Now, though the writer of Psalm 100 didn't read those studies, I think he would have agreed. 
Most scholars believe that Psalm 100 was a hymn that was sung in one of two ways. Either it was sung on the way to Jerusalem for one of the festivals that we talked about earlier in the series, or it was sung when a thank offering was being given or offered over to God. A thank offering uh, was given a lot of times because someone had just come through a very dangerous time, a very perilous trip, something like that, or something unexpectedly wonderful had happened. And they would take you know, the prescribed offering and they would offer it. And a lot of people, a lot of scholars believe that they would sing Psalm 100 as they offered that thank offering. Now, the writer of Psalm 100 seemed to know something that most people need to learn. Something that does not come naturally to most people, and that is that profound gratefulness, a recognition of very positive things experienced, will always be accompanied by something. It'll always be accompanied by joy. There's a joy that comes bubbling out of the heart of someone who is truly thankful and truly grateful. So how do you learn it? If it's an important thing, if it's something we need to learn, if the psalmist thought it was really important, how do, you le- how do you learn to be grateful? The psalmist said that there are two things we must understand to be grateful people in Psalm 100. He said, number one, you need to understand who you are, and then secondly, you need to understand who God is. We need to understand who we are, and we need to understand who God is. First, we need to understand this, that we are not God. We are not God. We need to know that he is the creator, and we, capital C, and we are the created. And although we are created in his image, we understand. We have self-consciousness. We have emotions. We have creative capabilities. Um, Yes, we are made in his image. We are very much like our creator. But at the very same time, I believe he's my opposite. He's the same, but he's also my opposite. You know what they say about opposites, right? What? Yeah, opposites attract. I'm always amazed. When I do premarital counseling uh, for, for, for couples, a lot of times they'll come in, and I am astounded. I'm always astounded. I've been doing this how many years now? I don't know, a lot of years, decades. And I'm always astounded how often they are so different. The, you know, uh, these two people who come to me, the, the, the male and the female, not, not just because they're male and female, but their personalities are different. The way they look at the world and the, the way they, they, they react to things is just so often so different. I'm always astounded by it. And maybe a word to single adults. Uh, if you find somebody just like yourself, run the other way. Because, and I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. Many times, it's not, it is, many times it is the nots of the other person that helps us most. It, it, what they are not is really the thing that's going to help me. For instance, you have a good heart. You love people. But maybe at the same time, comes with that, the downside, the negative side, is that you're a people pleaser. And, and you know, a lot of times you're the life of the party. A lot of times you are a wonderful person. You're an affirming person. You make everybody feel comfortable around you. But sometimes your convictions Go about an inch deep. And when somebody starts to push against you and the people-pleaser part of you starts to rise up, you back up. But God has put into your life, I'll bet, someone or people who really aren't impressed what everybody says by what everybody says. See, they're there for you. They are there to keep you steady. 
You're a serious-minded type of guy. You look at your bank statement three times a day. You can't wait for the end of the month. You actually get giddy when you realize that you have to, you know, kind of justify the numbers at the end of the month. That's like fun for you. But sometimes, because you're that personality, because that's the kind of guy you are, you, you don't get nuance. And listen, if you don't get the nuance of people, if you don't get that people don't add up, that you cannot look at individuals and personalities and people you live with and people you work with and say, you know what, if I, if I say this, they'll react this way, blah, blah. And, and if everybody doesn't do this, you're at you're a loss. And a lot of times you have a tendency to kind of put them in a garbage can in your mind. It's like, oh, I'm going to be polite, but you know what, when I got to get too involved here. See, and God a lot of times with people like that brings someone who loves people, who knows that people are amazingly nuanced. That there are all types of things going on. And uh, at times you've thought that he or she was just a little naive. But they're there to change your heart. See, they are what you're not. And they're not what you are. Often opposites, along with their strengths and weaknesses, if given over to God, will become the most powerful tools in the lives of spouses and close other people around us. Other people who are fraught, and this is true of everybody here, whether you know it or not, who are fraught with blind spots and brokenness and lack. And they can be used by God to make a more mature, well-rounded, happier person who God wants you to be. But listen, here's the thing. Be very careful. Be very careful because we often worship the things that we are not. As I was thinking about it this week, we are not rich, so we worship the rich. We're not famous, so we worship those in the cover of the magazines. We, we do not have a figure like her. We can't sing like she does. We don't have his athletic prowess. We are not the sharpest pencil in the box. So we worship the model, the singer, the quarterback, the instructor. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Even the church. What is worship? What is worship? You know what worship is real simply? Worship is lifting up something or someone who is higher and greater and better, at least in our minds, whether we're right or not. The word has to do with paying homage to someone or something, ascribing worth, ascribing affection to them or to it. It's expressing our love and our adoration and our praise to them or to it. Now, if the thing we worship is something other than God, it will never, ever fill us with joy. It'll never fill what's missing in our heart and if it's someone else, if it's a person, they will always, always, always end up disappointing us. And often too late we realize that we have been worshiping the wrong not. But the knowledge that we are not God should not fill us with unhappiness. It should fill us with joy. The fact is, uh, the basis of, for verses 1 and 2, look at verses 1 and 2. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Now, what, what thing about God that is not true of us should, according to the psalmist, fill us with great joy? Well, look at the second half of verse 3. The second half of verse 3 says this. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. 
Folks, I got to tell you something. Um, I really believe this. There is something, just something special between the creator and the created. There just always is. A few years um, before my father died in 2016, what I, what I would do for years leading up to that, uh, on my day off on Friday, I would uh, I'd go and see him on Friday mornings, go up New York State Thruway, and uh, I would stop at the local grocery store just in town there. I'd buy him a hard roll, extra butter, and then I'd go next door and get him uh, a cup of coffee from Dunkin' Donuts. Got to be Dunkin' Donuts, right? And, uh, and we would sit, and I'd go into his living room, and we would talk. Before that, when I was able to take him out, we used to go out for breakfast. Then it became very, very difficult, and for the last two years or so, we would just sit there in the living room. And after he died, I continued traveling up on Fridays to do my part along with my sisters in that long process that some of you uh, have gone through where you're preparing the house for sale. The cleaning, the spackling, the replacing, the gathering, the painting, the planting, generally getting a house that my kids, when they were little, used to get so excited to visit. So we go, oh, we're going to Poppy's house, we're going to Grandma's house. They would get so excited to get that house ready to sell and to say goodbye to. So it's, um, it, if you've done it, you know it could be a really kind of a heart-wrenching sort of, sort of things um, because, you know, there's so much to do. Uh, uh, there's stacks of paper and there are things. There are so many things. And when we get together, and, and I remember, uh, you know, someone would be saying, All right, anybody want this? Who want anybody? Once, twice, and then, it, you know, then it, then it would be gone, you know? Now, near the end of the process, my sister had set aside for me a, uh, a, a, a cardboard box with some things in it that looked like junk. People would, anybody else would have taken it and just thrown it in the garbage can. There was, there was an old baseball in a box. That happened to be the baseball that was the winning hit when I was in college against the team, and I saved the baseball, and I wrote on it. Uh, there, was, there was records, you know, Elton John, and just a, you know, a lot of stuff like that, good condition. I was always very good at my, my albums, always very good. And, uh, and, and there, was, there was a lamp. In fact, it was this lamp right here. Um, I had made this lamp when I was eight years old, in the stockade, I know, isn't it cute? Uh, in the stockade program at our church. We used to have boys' brigade and stockade with the little guys, and, and I remember doing this. And when I looked at the lamp, it brought back, you know, things bring back memories, smells bring back memories, things, seeing th pictures bring back memories, things bring back memories. And I remember doing this. And I remember taking a little tiny, you can't see it, there's little slats, tiny slats of wood, and, and there's little tiny nails. And just, you know, just hammering those, the sanding and hammering. And then, and then when the whole thing was done, uh, you know, it, it's, it's supposed to be like, see, it's a well. You see, it's a, it's a handle. And, and, and uh, uh, after that, staining it and then putting a really nice, two nice coats of lacquer, shellac on it. And it really was, was gleaming and it was wonderful. And, and for a long time, when I brought it home, my mother displayed it on a bookcase in our little living room in our home. And it was a source of light for years and years. But then at some point, we could do it everything. 
and got put in a box and they got put up in the attic, you know? And I, then, you know, I was gone and I, I didn't care. And somehow in the late 70s, when they moved from Long Island's South Shore up to Cornwall, New York, up by West Point, it, 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 it followed us. It, it came along with us and, and it was promptly deposited where it was on Long Island in a box up in an attic for the next 35 years in an open box. And over the years, the sunlight streaming in the dusty attic faded the color and dulled the finish. And I looked at it when my sister said, do you want any of this stuff? She said, junk. Do you want any of this junk? And, um, and I looked at it, and I, I, I couldn't throw it away. I just couldn't throw it away. Now, the, my brain is telling me, if I offered this at a garage sale or a garbage sale, as we call them, you know, somebody else's garbage, uh, no one would even give me 25 cents probably for it. And yet if somebody offered me 50 bucks, I don't think I would have taken it. I honestly don't. And I was thinking, why is that? I said, well, right, because you're a pack rat. That's what, you know, that's, that's, got, that's probably... I said, no, you know what, in this case, even though that's true, in this case, I don't think that's the reason. Do you know why I couldn't bear to part with this? Because I made it. Because I fashioned it. Because it was mine. I labored over it. I fashioned it. I added a little, you probably couldn't tell if you looked at some of the other guys, but I added my own little flair, you know, I like to do that. And I added my own little thing to that, you know what? To just make it look a little bit different. I couldn't throw out the lamp even though anybody else in their right mind would have done so. We're going to be looking at Psalm 139 in a couple of weeks. You know what Psalm 139 says? It says, for you, were, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. How is it then, how is it then that many times we talk ourselves into thinking that this God could ever, ever come to a point where he would conclude that we are junk? You know, many people really believe that. Many people really believe that, you know what? There is no one who would pick me up at a garage sale for 25 cents, so to speak. How can we ever conclude, reading the scripture, that God somehow reaches a point where he rejects us? Isaiah, and I love this. I remember years and years ago I found this verse, and as soon as I found it, I remember thinking about it, and, and, and underline, I never used to underline in my Bible. You know, you don't 
you don't do that by second. They just put you know marker or something in there. But that I think that's the first one he ever marked up. And it's from Isaiah. And he said this. And it was God's sentiments, I think, towards people. He said, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? In other words, you know what he's saying? Think of the most unimaginable thing on the planet. The most unimaginable rejection. A mother rejecting her newborn. Or, or, or a father who does not embrace his children but abuses them because of his own demons, which have warped and have broken him. People who have forgotten who they are. People who have forgotten what they should do. So Isaiah is saying, and God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, imagine the worst thing possible. The worst rejection that you could ever have. Then consider this, though she, he, they, may forget, I will not forget you. You can deny me, you can run from me, you can try as hard as you want to infuriate me, hurt me, embarrass me, but I will not forget you. I will not forget you. And the only reason the psalmist says that is, is you know why? Because he said, we are his. We are his people. Then he goes on to say this. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Do you ever see how many times in Scripture, if you've read through Scripture, through the writers, he pictures, God pictures himself in an agrarian culture as a shepherd, as, as a good shepherd, one who cares for the sheep. One who's concerned for their health and their well-being. One who will step out and will protect them, even if it means, you know what, they're in danger themselves from predators. And when one wanders away, he never says, like a bad shepherd would say, well, you know what, all right, there's one, we got so many. There's so many. I mean, it's one, I'm not going out for that one, okay? <laughs> I have more where that came from. In Luke chapter 15, which has been called the lost and found department of the scripture, we read and see a picture of the good shepherd. It says this in Luke 15, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And when you recognize, folks, that you are one of his own, when you see truly, and it goes from here to here, that you are his, and that none of your nonsense that you have thrown at him changes that singular fact, then you will be able to say, verse 1, and you will be able to shout for joy to the Lord. You will be able to worship the Lord with gladness and with joyful songs. But you will be able to be part of God's redemptive plan also. How do I know that? Because he mentions it in verse 1. We don't see it. We run over it. But you know, it's something that God 
really wants us to be a part of. God is not content that any of his creations, any of his lost sheep, be lost and separated from the joy that he calls us to, every single one of his creations. He says in verse 1, shout to the Lord, what? All the earth, not just Israel, not just, you know what, this nation or these people or the moral people over here, not just the black or the white, everybody. He wants everyone to have an opportunity where they could shout to the Lord. We've been given the sacred responsibility to serve him by speaking for him. Listen, there's a lost world who can never shout to him in hope and gratefulness. Does that break your heart? The other day, um, uh, Dency Rivera, Will Perez, I, we were, we were in New York City. Uh, we were ministering in, on behalf of someone from the Crossing Church. And just down the hallway from the courtroom, we, uh, there were these big windows, and it overlooked a large section of New York City. And we looked out on New York City, and uh, you know how you say something, you go, uh, you know, maybe I, shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I said, and, and I, I said to Will, Will was standing next to me, I said, uh, uh, I always get kind of sad when I, when, I, when I look at New York City. And then I knew I had to explain myself, you know? Now, New York City is an exciting place. There's, there's museums, there's culture, there's, you know, there's all these kinds of, th- lots and lots of restaurants, and it's just fun, and there's, there's a lot of people, and there's things to do, and there's Broadway shows, and this and that, and the other thing. But whenever I look at New York City, I always have this, this undefinable sadness, But I know it's not really undefinable because I know where it's coming from. Because I'm looking at New York City and I'm saying to myself, how many of these people, hundreds of thousands of people scurrying along the street before us, they have never even heard the gospel. They, They don't even know that there's a possibility of real hope, not only here, but beyond here, into the life eternal. And that breaks my heart. Has God broken your heart for the lost? Crossing church. Has he broken your heart for the lost? Do you believe that people made in the image of God, people whom he loves and for whom Christ died, who will never be able to enter into the full salvation and joy on this earth or in heaven forever, does that grip your heart? Does it, does, it, does it do something to you that they don't know that Jesus Christ bore their enormous sin burden on the cross and that they don't have to worry anymore? They don't need to fear. When they humbly come and they bow the knee before God Almighty, they admit their sin, they repent from their sin, they understand that Jesus Christ, when he hung on the cross, was in their place. Paul says in Romans at one place, you know, when we look at Jesus, we, we, we say, for the most part, you know, that should have been me. That's me up there. The, you know, the little plaque above his head, that should have my name on it. And all my crimes that I have committed. See, does that break our hearts that there are so, so many do you believe that God is calling those who know? 
those who have tasted of the goodness of God to serve and to give and to care and to sacrifice so that others may know. See, I do, and so did the psalmist. Until all the earth is able to shout for joy to the Lord, God is not content. God is not satisfied, and he never will be. He will never be content until your neighbor knows that life does not have to be without hope and have them living for the next great weekend, the next great love, the next great thing that they hope will come along and lift the blanket that has, they instinctively feel has covered them. God will never, ever be content with worshipers who have no thought to see other people become worshipers too. You'll just never be content. He sends us out so that all the earth will worship him. Do we think, do we strategize, do we pray towards reaching out to make someone who now worships this world a worshiper of Jesus Christ? When Isaiah had his vision of heaven, the guy at our, our men's uh, breakfast yesterday talked about Isaiah 6, guys, right? And, and that's what jogged my mind. Isaiah had this vision in chapter 6, and he saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, and he saw the glory of the Lord there in chapter 6, and two things happened. Two things happened in chapter 6. First, when he saw the glory of the Lord, he was struck with his own filth. He understood how unworthy, how sinful he was. See, isn't it interesting, and I've often wondered this, you've got five chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah is already ministering for a very long time before the vision in chapter 6 happens. But now God said, you know what? You're getting kicked up a bit, pal. We're going next level. And he lets him have this vision, and he was struck with his own sinfulness. Before that, you know what? I bet Isaiah was kind of going, Look at these people. I got I, I to gotta deal with these people? I got to deal with them? But when he saw the glory and the pristine nature of our God, the only thing he could say was, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone, he said. First thing that happened, he, was, he realized how filthy he was. Second thing that happened, God cleansed him. Immediately he forgave him. And God asked a question, second thing, whom shall I send? Standing in the room, looking around, Isaiah's right here, whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, send me. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, Isaiah, this is pretty cool, right? And I, and I, this is, I, you know, you're a human being, I get it. This is going to wreck you for a while. Go home, you know, about a month, just relax, you know, do a little gardening, do stuff like that. Just relax. He doesn't say that. Immediately, he tells him to go. Go out now. Because God is not only a saving God, he is ascending God so that all the earth will worship him from a grateful heart when they finally understand that they are not God. God is God. It is the beginning of the forming of a grateful heart. Second. Second thing we need. Second thing the psalmist thought we need to be filled with gratefulness, thankfulness, and to be able to worship with a full heart, is that we need to understand that God is not us. We are not God, and God is not us. 
after stating God's desire in verse 4 again, that we come uh, to he who is greater and ascribe to him the honor that is due him, he tells us why we should do so. It says in verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. 5, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. And now in the final verse, the psalmist says, let me tell you why you do what you do. And there are three reasons. He says, for the Lord is good. In spite of what's going on, the Lord is good. How can I say that? Because I know that good was a statement of the character of God. There is no spot, there is no blemish, there is no flaw in Almighty God. Everything about God is good. But it's not only his character that is good. His ways are good, too. Everything God does, the Bible says, is good. H.B. Charles said this, his plans are good, his purpose is good, his providence is good, his provision is good, his protection is good, and his pardon is good. I mean, there's a six-part series right there, right? I mean, that, that's an easy one. All that God does is good, meaning that he is the source of everything that you need for life. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says this, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, which means that God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. But you don't understand, Pastor Tab. You don't understand. I haven't shared with you, I haven't been here very long at the Crossing Church, if you understood, if you knew the challenges. Remember something. God is not us. He is, not, uh, he is not shocked. He is not taken by surprise with your challenges. But Scripture says he is working through those challenges to draw you to himself and to shine the light on your blindness. For what purpose? For a good purpose. If you will let him. If you will let him. And when you do, you know what it says in Psalm 34, uh, verse 8? It will become true for you. It'll say, it says this, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the one who takes refuge, refuge in him. How could people that I have talked to be in prison, and while they are in the midst of prison, I heard another, we had another story yesterday where someone would say, I am where God wants me to be. I am rejoicing in God's plan for me. One day I'll be free, but right now he is doing good things in my life. How in the world can they say something like that? It's because they've tasted in the trial, in the tribulation, they have tasted and they have seen the good work of God, that he is good all the time. Psalm 34, write it down. It says, oh, taste and see the Lord is good and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. But we praise him. For another reason, we praise him because of his love. It endures forever. Has said, I, I listened to Peter's uh, message last week, and he brought this up. Uh, has said is a very interesting word. Uh, love, translated love in most, uh, in, in, in a, you know what? Most versions can't, can't just put love because they know it's more than that. 
And they know that the reader isn't going to quite get it. You know, in, in, in the King James, it's translated mercy. In the New American Standard, it's, it's translated loving kindness. In the English Standard Version, it's, de, it's defined as steadfast love, not just love. The various versions don't know how to translate said, so that everybody can get, really get what it really means and the full orb understanding. It is a wonderful, gloriously indefinable word. And the best that I could come, the closest that I could come to this word is loyal love. Loyal love. And when I think of that, I think of Malachi chapter 3, where God said this. He said, I am the Lord and I do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. You are worth about 25 cents to anybody else in the world, sons of Jacob. You are tarnished, you are broken. You have trashed all my commands. You have never listened to me. But I will not consume you. Do you know why? Because of his loyal love. The reason why you aren't checking out right now is because I don't change. I will never change. Loyal love, steadfast love means that God will not change his mind about you even when you have changed your mind about him. You may know what it's like to stray from God. Many people have. And they get out there far and they feel they're out there and they don't remember the map. It's like they've made 57 turns. It's like I couldn't retrace my steps if, 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 my, if my life depended on it. But then somehow you start to walk back and you you're kind of getting there, and you've made somewhat of a U-turn, and, and, and you're, you're, you're walking back. And when you get back to the place, get some directions from people, all of a sudden you see that God is still there. He's never left. He's never left. He has always been waiting, standing, waiting for you the whole time so that you can have yet another chance. That's how good God is. He is not, God is not us. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. You know what it is? It's a summary of the character of God. This is a succinct statement of Jewish theology proper. A summary of what they believed about God's core nature, that he's good, that he's full of loyal love, and that he is faithful and will be forever. Know that God's love, God's goodness, God's faithfulness, they're not just theological positions, folks. They are a living person. They are a living person. God's goodness has a name. God's love has a face. God's faithfulness became pierceable. God, God's faithfulness became killable in, in Jesus Christ, who chose to die rather than to give up on you. So we praise him for Jesus Christ, who lived the life we never lived and couldn't live and died the death we should have died so that by his blood and by his righteousness, we can be restored to a living, waiting, loving God. Amen? It is probable that in most of us, in our spiritual life, that has been impoverished and stunted, it is because we have given so little place to gratitude. But folks, I know this. If I'm reading right, Psalm 100, I'm reading that, that a thankful heart will form when we know who we are 
and who God is. I read a story this week about a dear, a dear, dear, pious woman. She was, she was a faithful attendee of her neighborhood church, and it was a small inner city church, and there was a time in that service where, uh, you know, they had, a, they had an opportunity, anybody in the church, to stand up and, and to pray, you know, to just pray. I could be a little, be a little dangerous, but you know what? I mean, it's, it's, it was part of their, uh, the, uh, you know, their culture and everything that they did, and it seems like in the case of this dear woman, every week when it came to that time of the service, she would stand up and she would pray the exact same prayer. Five words. 52 weeks a year, she would pray the exact same prayer. She would get up and she would say, Oh Lord, thank you Jesus. And then she would sit down. Every week, Oh Lord, thank you Jesus. Now, the children in the church... You know, kids, they would always wait, wait, you know, for this dear woman. And as she stood up, they would kind of, you know, the, you know, go down and they would mouth, you know, they, to each other. Because, you know, I'd be doing the exact same thing if I was seven years old, you know. And they, they would do that every single One Sunday, a brave soul approached this woman and said, uh, Sister uh, so-and-so, why, why do you pray that same five-word prayer? all this time and she looked at him and without hesitation she said well I'm just combining the two prayers that I know and when she was met with a kind of a quizzical stare she explained she said you know we live we live in a pretty bad neighborhood here and you know as well as I do that on some nights there are bullets literally flying and when I hear gunshots and know that bullets are flying around I crawl in quickly to my daughter's bedroom, I grab her and I drag her down to the floor and we hide on the floor. And in that desperate state, all I know how to cry out is, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. But when I wake up in the morning and I see that we're okay, I say, thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus. And when I, I, I take my baby to the bus stop, and she gets on the bus, and I don't know what's going to happen to her that day. I don't know who she will meet or what she will face. As the bus starts to go down the street, I cry out, Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. And at 3 p.m., when that bus comes home, and she gets off the bus with a smile on her face, I say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Then she looked at the person. And she said, those are the only two prayers I know. And when I get to church, knowing that God has been so good, I put my two prayers together. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. I was thinking about it this week. If we were to learn that prayer, a prayer that acknowledges who we are and who God is, I'll bet it would go a long way to forming in us a thankful heart filled with joy as we praise our God. You know, sometimes 
like a child, we need to begin by just saying thanks. Maybe we don't even feel it fully. Maybe we're like two-year-olds. But we need to begin saying it. We need to ask God, God, open, open, would you open my, my eyes? Because you know what? A lot of times I'm blind. I don't even see it. Open my eyes to the, the good, faithful, loving God that you have been and are in my life. And I'm just going to say thanks, and I may not feel it fully, but you know what? By faith, I'm going to believe that one day I'm going to be able to say it, and I'm going to be like this woman, and just say, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus, when we come to worship. And I will say it, too. A thankful heart forms when we know who we are and who God is.